Hey folks, Jason Moore here. This episode is brought to you by hrvcourse.com. hrvcourse.com is now rated the number one resource for understanding the science behind HRV and how to use it to reach your goals. Everyone from doctors to NFL coaches to people just looking to be more healthy and fit have found answers over at hrvcourse.com. And listeners of this podcast also get 10% off all online courses. Just follow the link in the description of this episode or use coupon code ELITEPODCAST when you check out over at hrvcourse.com. Now let's dive into the podcast. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is Jason Moore, your host. And today we have a return guest, Don Moxley, who you've heard previously on this show. And Don, you're calling in from Ohio, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, I live in a little town called Granville, Ohio. It's just outside of Columbus, Ohio. Nice. And thanks for joining this morning. And I appreciate you taking the time. I know that um, the season is underway, right? Yeah, we're actually almost, uh, we, 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 we had our last dual meet uh, Sunday. We were actually relatively close to you. Uh, we were down in North Carolina State Sunday, uh, wrestled over in Raleigh. And then in two weeks, we begin our Big Ten qualifying tournament, which is a, a real bone grinder. Um, so we got to get through Big Tens. Then two weeks after that, we have the national tournament. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, to give folks a little background is we talked about some of this in the first round with Don, and that was one of the most uh, highly rated and exciting episodes if folks haven't listened to it. But Don is a sports scientist and also has worn many different hats over the past uh, couple decades, really. He worked at Polar, um, done some sports science, and uh, right now you're with Ohio State Wrestling and working with the elite wrestlers there that are winning national championships, uh, getting Olympic gold medals, uh, really operating at a high level. And uh, yeah, that's it's another exciting season of that, I think. Yeah, and it's boiling down that uh, the the race for the national title this year is going to be really, really close. That uh, the two leaders are are us, Ohio State, and we've got great competition from Penn State. And Penn State's won like six of the last seven national championships. The one they didn't win, we won in 2015. Um, and uh, as we roll into the tournament, the tournament's up in Cleveland this year. So it's kind of in our backyard, but uh, it's going to be an exciting tournament, no doubt. Awesome. Yeah, it's exciting times. And so last time we talked about, obviously, a lot about HRV, different physiological uh, monitoring that you do with the athletes and your your four pillars of athlete monitoring. Is that kind of how you coined that phrase? Yeah, it's, it's the key performance indicators that, you know, one of the things that we want to do you know, back as an athlete, back in the early 80s, when I was first starting, you know, adding strength and conditioning to your program was a relatively progressive thing to do. Um, and the sport and sports has evolved and sports science has evolved. I mean, you know, this is back when we had dial telephones and we didn't have personal computers yet. Um, 
But um, as sports has evolved, the ability to uh, develop key performance indicators, figure out what are we doing that makes a difference and then focus on that. That's a that's a key point. So the four areas for us right now are body composition, uh, helping our athletes choose the right weight class, uh, monitoring their body weight, you know, cutting weight is part of the sport. Um, and it, it, if done incorrectly, it can be devastating. Uh, done correctly, it gives you a competitive advantage. Um, so body composition is one. Strength is our second. Uh, cardiovascular uh, capacity performance is our third. And then our fourth is what we call readiness, the ability to be resilient and to be ready for the next training session uh, that we have scheduled for you. Yeah. And, and we dug into that a lot in that first episode, which was, it was awesome. And, um, so I recommend people, if you're interested in those four pillars and kind of Don breaking them down a little bit more, um, go ahead and check that first episode out. And then today we're going to shift gears a little bit because I think after our chat last time, you mentioned that a lot of the principles that you're applying at this elite athlete level actually also, apply to people who aren't necessarily elite athletes or maybe they're recreational athletes or just um, trying to be healthy and more fit Um, more of the average person all the way up to like competitive athletes that are maybe not already at that top level Um, and so I think you know and since then too there's another thing that I'd like to pick your brain about that you have brought up to me and that's kind of your um, I don't know if you'd call it your triangle or your 10 points that uh, represent kind of what people can focus on as they're trying to get more fit or uh, to be a better athlete. And that's the psychology, physiology, and skills continuum. And then in those, there's 10 different categories that I'll ask you about. So maybe those that's the direction we can head today on this discussion. What do you think? That's great. Yeah, I just call it my uh, my athlete development triangle, uh, long term athlete development triangle. It's a it's a model I've worked on for just years and years. That when I when I first start got out of school and started working with teams and coaches, you've got to you know the question is is what do we need to do to get better? And it's 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 just quantifying the key areas and 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 uh, then so that an individual can identify where their weaknesses are, where their strengths are, and and put together a plan for modifying those. Okay. So maybe what we can do is um, dig into a couple of those, and then we'll, you know, we'll relate it to not only the elite side, but also to uh, what, what the rest of us can learn from those. And so, you know, some of the, uh, I guess the easier places to start is with what do you think the physiology side of the triangle or sure, well, let's, let's, let's start by just laying out the triangle. So, you know, and we're going to do a visual thing on an audible platform. Um, but if you're listening and you're thinking about this, or if you have a piece of paper in front of you, you know, draw a triangle there and on the right leg of the triangle, I label that uh, physiological on the left leg of the triangle, I, I label that psychological. And on the base of the triangle, I label that skills. Um, so we'll start on the, on the right-hand side, the physiological side. And at the bottom of that, I have four elements that, that, that we identify on the physiological side. And the, the first one, which is at the bottom, we call movement. Uh, right above that, we, I put strength. 
Uh, right above that, we put uh, energy systems or cardio. And then the top uh, element we call resilience. Um, so that's that's kind of the... Now, all of these particular areas have subsections too, but we're just getting the big pieces in place mm-hmm. um, on the physiological side. On the psychological side, so we'll move over to the left-hand side of the triangle, and we'll start at the top and work down on this one. Um, the, there's three on this side at this time. Um, the top one, I, I use the term grit uh, or mindset or presence. Um, uh, they, they all kind of, uh, all three of those kind of cross over on each other. Um, the second major element is flow, F-L-O-W, flow. And, I, and on my model, I have a dash and it says focus. And then the, on the bottom of that, the third element is um uh emotional intelligence um so that's the those are the three major pieces on the left hand or the psychological side and then on the bottom of the triangle on skills on the left hand side of that is tactical skills um there's three there's three on the bottom of this by the way um the 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 left hand side is tactical uh the right hand side over by the physical leg is technical and then in the middle, I put I use the term life skills. Um, so the, those are the ten elements. Uh, again, I'll repeat them on the physiological side. It's it's working up. It's movement, strength, uh, energy systems, resilience. We flip over to the psychological side, working our way from top to bottom. It's grit or presence, uh, flow, focus, and at the bottom is emotional intelligence. And then on the skill side, on the left-hand side is tactical, on the right-hand side is technical, and in the middle are life skills. So those are the 10 big elements that we that we put on to our, our, our athlete development. And there's really no reason this can't apply to non-athletes. These are, these are very human characteristics. And uh, we just, uh, the, the way we look at them in athletics, we just, you know, we use a micrometer rather than an odometer to, to measure these is the big difference. But it's uh, they're all key that that fit the human condition, regardless. Awesome, and and so basically, after talking to you about these, uh, is that sorry, I had a little echo for a sec, but basically, after talking to you about these, it seems like these didn't just like spring out of a a book that you read or something like that. This is kind of uh, developed from your experience working with a wide range of folks, all the way up to the elite sports arena on areas that seem to contribute to uh, progress and development as far as, you know, improving health and or fitness and or uh, performance, not only in the, on, the, on the field or on the court or in the competition, on the mat for you, <laughs> um, yeah. or, but also in life as well. Yeah. The, uh, again, this goes back to, I think I first used this model probably back in the late eighties. Um, you know, right after I got out of grad school, I was working and, and that was when we first had teams coming to me at that time. You know, again, that there, there, everyone has that question. What's it take to be better? Um, you know, what are the elements that go into that? And, and it, uh, you know, there's obviously the physical side that we spend a lot of time looking at. Um, but with an athlete, and in, in fact, I'm doing this with my athletes right now as we sit down and we're starting w- with the exception of my 10 starters 
who who compete, you know, a few times here in the next month. The rest of my team, we're getting ready for the 2018-19 season, so we're starting a a goal setting process with them, and and we get and I give them this model, and their job right now is to go back and contemplate these ten elements, and and I want them to identify which of these is a strength, and which of these is a weakness for them. That uh, you know, there's a thing called constraint management that you you always look at the weakest link and you fix that if you're trying to improve performance, and um, so we're starting this process now uh, where, you know, for them to start to cognitively get their head around what are our strengths and what are our weaknesses? Cause what I, what I tell people, particularly in the athletic model, you lose on your weakness here um, and you win on your strength is that, and, and this is particularly true in the sport of wrestling is that, you know, wrestling's kind of unique that you really can't have a weakness in any of these um, and I tell my kids, I said, if you, if you had each of these elements and you give it a one to 10 score, um, and there's 10, well, 10 to the 10th is a billion. Um, and if you've got tens on all these, then you've got a billion score and it's great. Uh, but if I throw a zero in on any of these, uh, your score goes to zero. Um, so, you know, the, it's, it's a matter of, of, realistically looking at these key pieces. And, and so we we've done a really good job recently, you know, in the sports science community of, of quantifying the physical side of this triangle. You know, we have, we have good tools for quantifying movement, strength, cardio, and, and, and readiness or resilience. Um, you know, we're starting, we're looking at doing a better job of quantifying flow. You know, there, there's some good flow pieces out there. Um, we have to get them applied emotional intelligence. We can quantify these things. Um, everything on here can be quantified at one level or another. And as we improve that score, you're able to improve your ability to move, uh, over time. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. And and I, I didn't expect it to be, you know, I was going to ask you actually, which of these can be quantified and which are more kind of, uh, feeling it out. And I know that there's definitely, um, easier things to quantify like strength and, uh, now also resilience, which we talked about in the last episode and energy conditioning movement. You also said you do specific movement screens and functional movement screening. So like you said, that whole right side of the triangle physiology, and then, the psychology and skills side, those can be maybe a little more challenging to quantify. Yeah, we're investing a lot more energy in those right now. Um, you know, when you look at uh, Angela Duckworth's work, and you know, she wrote the the book Grit, which I recommend highly. Um, you know, there's a grit scale that she has, and um, when you look at things like measuring flow, there's really good flow measurement tools. Um, we've been spending some time talking with Stephen Kotler, who's the author of the of the uh, Rise of Superman and and uh, and and Stealing Fire, two great books that I also recommend. Um, so we're trying to do a good job of of beginning to quantify. It takes a lot of energy to get this. We we do not have a simple assessment yet, um, but I think you know. Listen. Uh, 10 years ago, I wasn't measuring resilience. Now it's becoming a much easier factor at this point. And, and what we're also going to see, one of the reasons I, I put the, the different elements on the triangle is that, 
that resilience measurement that's at the top of the physical side, I have it up there next to grit and presence um, because those two things cross over uh, readily. The, the reason I have movement down next to technical is many times to get technical improvements, you have to fix something in a movement pattern that the, the lack of a tech, the ability to execute something technically may be movement related. And then finally, over on the third side of the triangle, that emotional intelligence and tactically that, you know, uh, controlling your emotions, manipulating your opponent's emotions uh, can be a very powerful tactical tool. Well, th this isn't just in athletics. I mean, this can be in, in life and in business, understanding it. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're really starting to put the energy in. We're trying to come up with some good technical uh, evaluations. We're already doing some pretty interesting stuff tactically. You know, we do film review, things like that in the in the middle of the when we look at life skills, you know, nutrition is a life skill. Uh, your ability to go out and, and uh, identify food sources and prepare them appropriately, that, that can be quantified. Um, uh, so this is, this is our challenge right now to try and, and, and get uh, the rest of this triangle brought into a single dashboard, which, which is not a small job. <laughs> well, maybe uh, we can help with that over the long run. And uh, no, I think this is fantastic. And, you know, there's so many things, so many thoughts flying as you describe this. And I just wanted to ask a question real quick. Would you mind if we posted a picture of this triangle on the show notes of this podcast? Oh, absolutely not. I'll send you I'll send you what I've got. Okay. Yeah. So for folks listening, if you're having, if you're driving or doing something that's not allowing you to draw it out in front of you, then we'll post a picture of this triangle on the show notes of the podcast. And you can check those out over at elitehrv.com slash podcast. And, and, and what the other thing about this, Jason, is when they look at the, um, an important part of this, I think, is, is that when you think of the triangle, the triangle represents uh, the individual represents the athlete, the three sides. Now, if you add a fourth point to this, if we raise a point up off of the triangle and, and create a tetrahedron, that fourth point, that is the coach. That is the individual that's trying to influence the, 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 the athlete that is represented in the triangle. And so this is where it's, it's the, it's the sides of that tetrahedron that represent techniques for influence, for changing. And this is, this is where, you know, whether it's Prochaska's work and stages of change or, or any of the behavior change models or leadership or coaching. And again, this applies at an athletic level, this applies in a business level. Listen, this applies at a parenting level um, that, you know, if, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I want behaviors that lead to, uh, that lead, I want to behave, I want behaviors. Um, I want to change behaviors. I want good behaviors. Well, I, I can't, I can't make my, in my athlete behave. All I can do is influence them so that they make better decisions, which lead to better behaviors. And, um, you know, so think of that triangle, throw that fourth point up there. And that's, that's the perspective of the coach or the leader. That's huge. And, you know, we'll dig into some of these points deeper, but I want to just add to that. And that my, ex in my experience, the, one of the, the best things that anyone can do to reach any goal is to, uh, work with a good coach basically. And coach is you know, not just for sports, right? Like you said, business coaches, 
Um, it doesn't, you know, coach doesn't even have to be like somebody's job. It could just be a mentor or somebody you look up to or somebody who's walked that path before, something like that. And I just like throwing that out there every now and then since, you know, I am a tech guy and I do think that over time technology can help us solve a lot of problems. But still uh, today, I think that one of the best things people can invest in is finding a good coach to work with. Um I completely agree with that. And I want to, I want to extend that just a little bit. Um, and this goes back to work when, when I was, when I was wrestling back in the early eighties, I, I tell the story that um, my, my third year. So I redshirted one year. So my third year, I finally make the starting lineup that year. I was six and 12. I had six wins and 12 losses of the 12 losses. I was winning 11 of the matches when I got pinned, I couldn't get off the bottom. Mm. Um, so that summer I went and I, the next summer I went and spent at a, a wrestling camp in, in, uh, Eastern Virginia called Granby school of wrestling. And you, you basically become unrideable. So I fixed that, that constraint. And I went from six and 12 to 39 and nine. Um, Woo. now <laughs> that year of the nine losses, seven of them took place in a dual meet situation in our home arena, St. John arena. So, which was a situation where I could not lose on the road and I could not win at home. Um, well, I, I did some work. I, I wound up getting connected with a great sports psychologist who taught me about anxiety, taught me about uh, a visualization. And, and actually, back then, we were doing a lot of meditative work. We didn't call it that back then. Um, but I was using meditative techniques to manage anxiety. And there was visualization pieces. Well, the, the fact that I developed a respect for a great psychologist ever since then, I have, I I've always had a personal coach. Um, if I don't have a psychologist that I'm working with, it's a friend. I'm usually looking for someone to work with professionally. And, and for me, one of my best coaches is working with a great psychologist. Um, and, and I call it coaching. So uh, as you're working on this, and if you have something in your life, don't be afraid of this. It's it's not a weakness to choose to work with someone like this who's a good coach. And there's, listen, there's good coaches, there's bad coaches, there's good psychologists, there's bad psychologists. You got to be comfortable, but be willing to explore this. It can be a very powerful tool. Yeah. And it's, you know, and speaking of the psychology side of things is um, almost nothing we do in life has to be permanent. So I think as long as you're not cashing in your retirement savings to pay someone a million dollars up front to to hire them as a coach, yeah, the problem. then, uh, you know, the risk is pretty low. And uh, one of the best things you can do with your time is learn what doesn't work also. So if you hire a coach and they don't work out, then that's also a good learning process. And you can say, what didn't work out about that? Now I'm going to try to avoid that in the future. Um, so yeah, so maybe what we can do is we can go around the triangle to each of these 10 areas, um, because you got me kind of interested in all of them and we can just say like, what's the kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be the official number one thing, but what's one thing that folks can do in each of those areas or that, or that something that people miss usually in those areas. And then maybe kind of relating that to, uh, high performance sports and then kind of a life side of things. Does that sound like an, an exercise that you'd be good for? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, do you have a particular side you want to start on? 
Yeah, I think, well, let's start with movement. Um, because like you said, on the physiology side, some of this stuff has been quantified out and we already chatted about some of it already in the previous episode. So let's start with movement and then maybe work our way up and around. Right. And so, so from a movement perspective, you know, obviously athletes definitely need to move. Uh, there was a statistic that I heard at a, a presentation by an Olympic, uh, 400 meter runner for, um, from, I apologize, 800 meter runner from the UK, uh, was at the Scottish high performance sport forum. And he mentioned that the top Olympic athletes, uh, on average played like four or five sports when they were a kid, they didn't specialize in their sport usually until, you know, they were already exposed to a bunch of sports. And I think that that kind of ties in a little bit. There's a lot to that, but I think it ties in a little with this movement piece. And in my opinion, like um, people underestimate the value of being able to uh, move in general and have good uh, presence and awareness when you're moving and being able to move organically in different ways instead of just saying like, okay, I'm a runner. All I need to do is be able to run forward in a straight line. Um, and, you know, obviously you're going to specialize the higher you get in your sport. But uh, is that something you've found on the movement side too? And I totally just went completely off of my plan of having one little point for each of these and just dove off the deep end on movement. <laughs> that, that's not a problem. That's the beauty of podcasting. Um, let, well, there's there's two sides. I want to address that point that you raised about specialization. Um, but I'm going to come back to that because specialization hits a couple different areas on this triangle. Um, but when we start talking about movement, let's apply this more to just the general human population, because I tell my, my wife teaches, my wife teaches a class here in our house. It's a, it's a modified Zumba strength class. And, and I call it CrossFit for 65 year olds. And, um, and she's got this great bunch of gals that come over and work. And one of them, Mary, um, is always grousing about doing squats. Um, and we made an observation one day, and I think this is important. I think this is where, it, where, where the triangle extends across the human experience is the fact that Mary, about three years ago, retired from teaching. Um, and we were having the discussion about this is that, you know, in life, you spend like you spend like the first uh, 25, 30 years of your life learning. You're in school, you're growing, you finally get married and and, and you start a family. And then you spend the next 20 to 30 years of your life, this middle third, um, taking care of other people, raising your family, uh, working for other people. Uh, but it, it's usually in uh, that, that middle third of your life, you're giving to someone else. The third third of your life, when you finally retire, is the time that's finally your own. It's when you're giving to yourself. And when I was talking to Mary, I said, I said, you know, you, you've spent all this time working, you know, she was 62 or 63 at the time. I said, now, you know, the, the question is what's going to happen in the next 20 years? Where does, you know, how do you enjoy this? And, and, and independence is an important part of this, your ability to be independent um, and not be shackled to a hospital or to a bed or something like that. And when we discuss this, the independence is largely defined by an individual's ability to sit down 
uh, defecate, clean themselves, stand up and walk away without assistance. Uh, the day that you can't do that is the day your independence goes away. And so when we're teaching squats, I'm usually using some type of a, you know, I'm looking at the ability to sit down and move. Um, you know, there's a great book called Move Your DNA. I'll think about the author here in a minute. Um, but we live in a society where we have a lot of artificial um, slings um, that we don't we don't sit like like we evolved to. We have chairs that are and, and even toilets now are being elevated so you don't have to sit as low. And when I see that, I see oh, I see uh, where where uh, 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 our our development, our institutions are actually limiting our independence. And so so movement at a at a raw level is your ability to do the basic things to sit down to move to 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 crawl you know i you know there's there's a lot of people living in this space right now and i like it but it, but at a at a very at a very gross high large level that's 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 where movement starts as we start to move up and you refine it from there, you know, when we look at functional movement screen is, does my top work with my bottom, my front work with my back, my right work with my left? Um, how has, how has my environment limited my ability to do things? You know, I don't know about you, but right now I'm sitting on a stool at my stand up desk. Um, I'm sitting on a stool because I need, you know, I've got a microphone in front of me and I need to stay relatively uh, stable. I don't have a big comfortable chair on purpose because I want, you know, when I'm working here, I want to, I want to fidget. I want to move and I want to stay on my feet. Um, so, you know, again, moving from, from, from large to small, uh, when I have a knee that's bothering, you know, I've had six knee surgeries from wrestling, you know, but you know, most of them were, were 25 years ago. Um, now, when my knees bother me, it's usually something that's telling me I've not been moving correctly. I've not spent enough time on my bike or I've not I've not been feeding that joint a certain way. Um, so anytime that there's an ache or a pain, you know, a lot of times we're conditioned to take a medication and. And I think a lot of times from movement, when we have an ache or a pain, it may be the body saying, hey, you need to move around a little bit. You've not done something. I'm going to give you a signal that I want you to be uncomfortable. You know, when we get hungry, our body gives us a signal, hey, I'm hungry. So you get up, you start to rummage around for food. Um, uh, this is the same thing. And then, you know, we extend it into athletics where we need fine fine movement control that, uh, that, you know, we do so many reps in a particular format in a sport that will start to limit, you know, it will start to limit movement. And, um, and as we improve this either on a right to left top to bottom, uh, uh level, um, it yields an improvement in performance. Mm, that's so powerful. I love how you start with a base of movement being equated almost to freedom, right? And it's, it's not only independence, but freedom. So the greater you can move, um, the more free you are in the world as we, as you move about and try to go through life. Well, and you can extend that, you know, my, my daughter, who's now 20 years old and my daughter is a, a big physical athlete. She's six foot one. She weighs about 210 pounds. She can squat 400 pounds and she plays lacrosse at, a, at, at Ohio state. So she runs with lacrosse players. You know, she's a big physical kid. Her first sport, it was funny when she was young, you know, we pull out the, the, the local rec magazine saying, okay, pick a sport. And there's a whole list there. Well, she picked wrestling. 
And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> um, and you know, she, she, she grew up in wrestling. My office, there's wrestling everywhere in my office. You know, she grew up with it, but she wrestled for three years and I didn't have a problem with it because she learned to be physical. She learned to, um, she learned to not fear physicality. Um, and I think a lot of times this is another one of those movement things is that, you know, I, I want to be in a situation that if you're threatened, uh, you're not fearful because of a lack of, of physicality, the ability to move. Um, so a lot of this comes back and, uh, and, uh, and really supports. And you start to, again, you move up to that, to the psychological side of that triangle is where's the fear coming from? Um, and, you know, that applies again to the elderly population that, that my mom now is about 83 years old and every, you know, she goes out to Phoenix, Arizona for six months a year and then comes back here to Ohio for six months a year. Inevitably, when she's in Phoenix, her movement improves. And, and my mom's, my mom's life is going to revolve around her ability to move and not fall and, and do well. Um, so again, this goes back to that independence and, and, and lack of fearfulness. Yeah, no, that's huge. It's and movement. It's kind of like uh, another uh, one of my many passions in life, so to speak. And um, it's something that historically I was not good at. And I've spent a lot of my adult life trying to improve. And I've found so many psychological benefits of doing it. Self-confidence, um, just ability to to tackle many different uh, challenges that weren't even sport related. Um, and yeah, it's it's huge. So what I'll what I'll do is let's let's move up the triangle a little here. We'll kind of breeze over strength a little because, like you said, strength is one of those things that we talked about in the first episode, and it contributes to movement. It contributes to other things as well, um, even the psychology side. It's it's a pretty uh, well researched and easy to measure um, side or. or part of this equation. And I would say probably maybe the big point, maybe what's one big point on strength that people tend to miss? Uh, well, um, again, looking at your environment, uh, another quick story on this. I, I had a client at one time um, who uh, here in Granville, and she was a, a mother of three, but she was a very successful uh, high school and college athlete. She was a multiple time state champ in gymnastics, earned a college scholarship in gymnastics. Um, and she came and started training with me. And one of the challenges is, uh, again, I'll throw another book out there that I like. Um, uh, oh, I just blanked on it. Um, it'll, I'll come back to it in a second. But they talk about, they talk about uh, desert people versus jungle people. And, and desert people are people with the genetics to go out on a trek. They put a water bottle on their hip. They're out in the desert. They travel for long times. They have a huge perspective as to what's going on. So there's not a lot of fear. You see anything that's a challenge out on the horizon versus jungle people um, are people who, live again, live in a jungle. You, you move in three in, in three axes, uh, right, left, forward, back, up and down. You don't need to carry food. Food and water is readily available, but there's always a challenge of fear. And, and, and so I always think of gymnasts and wrestlers as jungle people where I look at the, the slow twitch as desert people. Um, now the challenge for a, for a jungle person, when you move out of athletics into life 
is that there aren't ways to express yourself that if you want to do something physical, you have 5Ks, marathons, triathlons. There's a lot of desert people events to train for. There aren't a lot of jungle events to train for. So um, depression can be one of the, again, looking at the psychological reaction to not feeding your DNA is, uh, is, is, is this depression. So literally, you know, we trained for marathons and triathlons and things like that. But a lot of that training meant coming into the weight room and picking up something heavy occasionally. Um, and it was to the point to where, you know, we started this with her program and her husband came back to me after and says, I don't know what you're doing, but she's never been happier when they do these workouts. So when you look at this strength piece, it's a critical piece to, to success. And I really feel like if you can only do one thing, you need to pick up heavy stuff. Um, if you can do two things, pick up heavy stuff and walk. Um, but, uh, strength is critical in this process. It drives a lot of hormones. It drives a lot of, of, uh, the adaptative processes that we've evolved to do. Um, so keep strength in the process. And I think that underlying what you just said is, and what folks can learn from what I just did is I oversimplified one of these pillars because I was like, oh, of these 10 things, strength seems like it's the easiest, but, um, you know, that's coming from just a bias or something or, or whatever. But, uh, a lot of these are deeper than people think. And then, you know, coming back to some knowledge that I also had this kind of rekindles some things that I knew from when I was a coach and used in that, um, one of the biggest predictors of aging, uh, aside from HRV, of course, is strength. And then the, one of the second biggest predictors of aging is, uh, muscle tissue, um, so basically, if you have, if you're strong, then you're going to live a lot longer, most likely. If you're, if you have good muscle, lean muscle, um, then you're going to live a lot longer, most likely, and also be healthier through that lifespan. And so, you know, obviously now there's things like HRV and other measures that people use for longevity and health span, but it, a second to some of those more technological measures, it's strength and lean muscle. And that doesn't mean you have to be a bodybuilder to live a long, happy life, but it means that if you have lack of strength or lack of lean muscle, that life's going to be pretty challenging. Agreed. Awesome. Well, great. So, okay. So continuing up that continuum is uh, energy slash conditioning. And in there, we talked about last time you use some tools with your athletes, like the the bike and doing different cardiovascular tests, some fitness tests. Um, so maybe we could just chat about how those relate to not only the elite side of sports, but also life as well. Yeah. So when you start to look at energy systems, um, a lot of times, one of the challenges that we have is that when we go out to do something cardiovascularly is we want to go out and with, with, without good feedback, we go by feel. And one of the challenges is, is that when you go out to train and you feel how hard you're going, you've probably crossed over a very important uh, metabolic uh, uh, guide. And that is when we look at what's called anaerobic threshold, when you cross over from a purely aerobic energy system to where you start recruiting anaerobic energy and that feel that you're getting is, is hydrogen ion or lactic acid. Um, you know, I learned this personally, you know, wrestlers love training with their face on fire. 
Um, if, if it, if it doesn't hurt, if it, you know, we pride ourselves in the fact that we can endure better than, and than the next guy and, and, and we train that, but, you know, back, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what year it was, but it was, it was Lance Armstrong had won two or three, uh, uh, tours at the time. And, and I was watching the tour and this was, this particular tour had a time trial on Alpe d'Huez. Um, they didn't climb it. It was a, they time trialed Alpe d'Huez and and Chris Carmichael, his coach, was out on the road and talked about he expects Lance to finish in this time. And Jan Ulrich, who was the German for uh, for T-Mobile, was was the competition. And and Chris Carmichael predicted both of their times in this particular. And I'm like, wait a minute, where did that come from? I want to learn that. So. I went out, uh, I, saw, I, I did some work and I got signed up and I went out to Chris's school out in Colorado Springs and I learned this concept of threshold training. And this is something we didn't learn in graduate school back in the 80s, um, but you, it's very difficult to do threshold training without some decent feedback. And this is, if you're going to exercise, uh, if you're exercising now and you don't have a heart rate monitor on, you're kidding yourself. Your, your, the efficiency that comes, the the amount of improvement that comes is is crazy, and and you know you can buy transmitters now for fifty bucks. Um, they talk to software on your phone that's free that is now very very powerful. But when you look at this cardiovascular piece, you can absolutely increase the efficiency of development immensely with just the addition of a simple heart rate monitor to your program. Mm. And that's at all, that's at the top. And if you're new, I mean, obviously, if you're a complete newbie to any type of exercise, then basically, all you have to do is start moving a little bit, and you'll start benefiting. But pretty quickly there, if you want to keep rapid progress, then a little bit of quantification could go a long way, right? Yeah, and this is this is really economics. This is this is about return on investment. If you're going to invest the time, don't you want to maximize the return? Um, and and so this is you know a lot of the stuff that we do you know runs on an economic model, uh, not 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 necessarily financially economics, but you know it's investment and return. So so yeah, if you're going to put the time in, you want to get the biggest bump, and 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 why not do that? And that's that's huge. That plays into so many things because you know the to date and until some really crazy technology comes out, time is our most scarce resource. And that's also you know there's so much there's a lot of psychology behind that um, and and all that stuff. But you know one of the really big things that drew me to heart rate variability and and just quantification in general was exactly that. And it's like okay, well if if I, I can get myself geared up and I can go exercise hard day after day for a period of time, eventually maybe I'll burn out or something. But um, what I was fascinated to find out was that um, doing that wasn't necessarily increasing my fitness or results proportionally to the amount of time I was putting into it. And that prioritizing the right amount of exercise for my current condition or you know, the, the inputs and outputs that I was able to, uh, have like nutrition and sleep and all this other stuff that I could maybe spend less time and get more results or spend an equal amount of time and get even more results, uh, was really fascinating to me all while also preventing injury or reducing the likelihood of injury and those types of things that really are huge setbacks, whether you're an athlete or 
just a person who's trying to be healthy. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's avoiding that injury is, is, is the number one. And again, this goes across the spectrum, whether you're elite athlete all the way down to um, not down to all the way over to, you know, just the, the regular human, um, the, the, the ability to, is your, your biggest challenge is avoiding injury. Yes. Yeah. And, and that actually is another thing to say about all of these pillars. Um, all of these 10 factors is that, if you're a zero on any of these, your injury potential goes way up, in my opinion. Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm, I while we are talking, the 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 jungle person, uh, desert person, comes from a book called The Exuberant Animal. Um, it, as I was thinking about it, it finally came to me. Uh, so I uh, really recommend it if you're looking for a cool read. Awesome. Yeah, we'll include. So on that note, all the books and things that we mentioned as well will be listed in the show notes. So uh, like I mentioned, if you don't have a pen handy, um, just go ahead and check out the, the podcast page and we'll post links to those books and stuff. So so yeah, that kind of leads us into that resilience, which is that fourth aspect of the physiological side of the triangle, right? Right. And so what what can we learn from the resilience piece? Well, there, what, what's interesting about the resilience piece is, you know, from our stand, from my standpoint, resilience is the ability of my athlete to be able to train, recover, and come back and train again. Um, you know, my our ability to pack enough workouts into this athlete's life that we get uh, recovery and we get super compensation. This is that this is that that element that we're always playing with, and so. So strength, as you get stronger, you develop resilience. As you improve your energy systems, you get more energy, you become more resilient, and you, you be, you, you're able to recover faster. So when I look at resilience on the triangle, I think of this a lot like uh, the dashboard in my car, that um, when I'm out driving... Uh, I'm, I'm only looking at a couple, a couple factors. I'm looking at how fast I'm going is, is the big thing that you're worrying about. And, and the HRV measures, uh, that we look at begin with the, the big number I look at is what I look at as RMSSD. I think of that as the speedometer on my car. Now, most of the time when you're driving, you've got your speedometer, everything's fine. But on occasion, a little amber light will pop up. Um, and it'll say, Hey, you're running low on fuel. You might want to think about fixing this. Well, this is where, you know, the resiliency measures start to come into play that as if I'm not getting recovery, or if there's something wrong, I'll get an amber light. I'll see I'll see my speed drop, perhaps, or I'll see one of these sub factors in um, in the HRV measurement. Uh, I use a lot of LF uh, HF uh, tuning in what we do. Um, and that's kind of like getting fuel in the tank. And then, and on occasionally when you're driving your car, you get this great big red amber light that says freaking shut your car down. Don't go any farther. Or it's going to break. Um, well that can show up in resilient in, in this, in the HRV and the resilience that we're looking at our central nervous system is that feedback dashboard and the, the ability to quantify it using the, the techniques that we are, are what breaks it into, uh, well, how fast are you going? How much fuel's in your tank? Do you need to work on your brakes? What's going on? Uh, you know, with you know, I can extend the automotive uh, analogy here, but I think we get the idea that that's where the resiliency piece comes in, and it's a management tool for a lot of the things below it on the triangle. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, you know, I like to think of it too as you can relate it to like a financial analogy in the sense that it's almost like your bank account for dealing with challenges, right? Sure. And so you wake up every day, you have kind of refreshed your bank account a little by sleeping and recovering, and you're ready to tackle some more challenges and everything that you face, whether it's a exercise session or a final exam or a presentation at work or, you know, dealing with, um, you know, a stressful relationship, any of that stuff kind of withdraws from that bank account and all of the training and life experience that you have is uh, increasing your resilience over time to those various things that you're exposing yourself to. And then, uh, you know, making it so that the withdrawal each time you're exposed is a little less. Uh, well, and again, that's spot on. And the thing I want to throw up is every once in a while, you don't know, you may not recognize something that's drawing on your account. Um, and this gives you the ability to see that and identify it and take it into uh, consideration. It's that check engine yeah, light. That's huge. That's almost like uh, credit monitoring or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're going to keep extending these analogies, um, it's like somebody stole your credit card and you wouldn't know unless somebody was monitoring that. Um, so, no, that's huge. So then that kind of brings us around the top of the triangle into the psychology side. And I love how all of these pieces can relate so heavily. And you can immediately see as we move from resilience on the physiology side over to the psychology side where you have grit and presence is that that mindset is just going to feed that whole side of the puzzle already. So yeah. what can we learn from that? Well, and from, from a listener standpoint, um, uh, Amy Cootie's book presence, um, Amy is a, um, Dr. Cootie is a, um, uh, a Harvard psychologist. And yeah, a lot of people recognize her. She, she did the wonder woman pose at Ted talk. Uh, so if you search it, you'll see it. But essentially, she's identified that there are somatic uh, there are somatic techniques that change your resiliency, that change your readiness. Um, and um, if and, and you know, one of the interesting things, if if you coach, if you have a daughter, if you're married, if you if you if you have a female in your life that's important to you, I think it's important that you read presence because. Our society tends to have a again looking at at environmental impact on humans. Our society tends to make women small, um, and that process increases stress. That process um, uh, uh, is 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 not healthy. And and Amy has Dr. Cootie's done a very nice job of identifying somatic techniques that 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 give women and. and and not just women, but men give humans the ability to be large, to get the testosterone response, to get the resiliency increase. Um, so I, I recommend, again, if you coach, work with, have a daughter, I recommend this book is a must read. Um, and, and then you throw Angela Duckworth's work in there on grit. Um, and, and, you know, she does a nice job of talking about mindset, um, in, in the context of grit, these are, these are techniques. So these are processes that you can use to improve that psychological readiness um, as you move through life. Mm. And that's huge. Yeah, it's in this area too, I think kind of it, 
you know, it relates so much. They all relate to each other, really. But when we were talking about freedom uh, that comes from movement ability and then strength and uh, what that brings to the table is that some, you know, whether or not you're in, uh, you know, they say that a lot of leaders in business are tall men, right? People who are mm-hmm. kind of physically imposing or demanding of uh, respect from a physical standpoint is that even if you're small, so for example, my wife, um, Alyssa, who's also a you know, business partner and everything, uh, she's a very small person. <laughs> so she's barely over a hundred pounds and she's five foot, uh, almost five foot two, she likes to say. And, uh, but, uh, she's very capable mover. She's, uh, she was a gymnast growing up. Uh, she's very strong, naturally, a great mover, pretty fit. Um, and she's got a really active mind. She's got incredible grit and presence. And, you know, I, I just like complimenting her publicly because it's kudos for me as well. But um, <laughs> no, but uh, but in reality, so she worked in the oil industry, which is a very male dominant industry as an engineer. And she would go out to the field and work with guys who were uh, fairly rough sometimes. And, you know, she didn't let it hold her back. She had uh, a lot of these pieces in place, a lot of life skills, technical skills, tactical skills, uh, emotional intelligence. She's got all of these pieces and that all kind of increased her grit and presence in the business place in addition to the athletic side of things, which she excelled at as well. So I think they all kind of interconnect. And I just wanted to say that that's building on some of these also increases your results in others, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, the model, uh, what's funny is that the model I've worked with this model, the triangle is the easiest way to do it. But a lot of times I, um, I've tried to use a a trillion diamond, you know, a three-sided diamond, because when you hit that with light, when the light hits that, it reflects, it refracts differently and it hits other areas. So at some point in time, I want to evolve my model to be a trillion diamond, not just the triangle, because again, that the, the technique that you're using, the light that you're shining on it will hit, will refract differently depending on the angle that it's put in. Mm, I like that. So, so kind of continuing down this is, so this, this particular one flow focus and focus might be one that kind of is a linchpin for folks in the sense that, okay, yeah, okay. Maybe I want to move better, be more confident, have more energy, be more resilient and ready. I want to have good mental grit and stuff. But, you know, now how do I channel all that into my goal of X, right? So like I want to, uh, like you said, be a better wrestler in the sense that you don't want to be, you want to be able to not be pinned or maybe in the business room, you want to be able to um, solve technological problems really uh, rapidly or something like that. And I think that this flow slash focus piece that we're about to talk about kind of takes all of these pieces and channels them towards something. And, and is that kind of, am I on the right track with that? Yeah, I think so. So let, let's just deal with, with the term flow. And, and this goes back to, this was one of my original counselors, one of my original psychologists I worked with, turned me on to a book that the title is Flow, The Psychology of the Optimum Experience. Um, and the author is a, is, a guy, is a doctor by the name of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. 
Um, you'll need to spell that in the, sh in the show notes. Yes. Um, but flow is the is the uh, is the process where you're engaged, you're focused. There's seven characteristics to the flow experience that Dr. Cheek sent me high, uh, laid out. Challenging activity requires skill, merging of action and awareness, clear goals and feedback, concentration on the task at hand. There's a transformation of time and there's a loss of self when you do this. It's that, it's, it's, it's now, what we know is that when you're in flow, we're just dumping all the really cool hormones into our brain and we love to be there. So, you know, the flow work was extended again by an author by the name of Stephen Kotler, who wrote a book uh, called The uh, Rise of Superman. And, and he looks at f generating flow with these crazy um, ex-athletes, you know, these guys that ride their skateboards across the Great Wall of China or, or they, you know, they drop in on these huge waves and, and, and they either get into flow or they die. Um, it is, is what you find out in that. But, but Csikszentmihalyi identified this flow process at work. Why do some people enjoy work more than others? I mean, uh, the, the seminal idea came from the fact that someone in a, in, in a concentration camp could experience flow while playing a game of chess so that when the, when they're everything around them as bad as it possibly could be there, you could, you could get this, this disconnect of the prefrontal cortex and, and you create this flow experience. I, I believe this is critical to life that if, if you can't enjoy what you're doing, you're not going to want to go back. So whether it's work or training or life or, you know, this is an important point that, that I don't think can be underestimated. So the ability to flip into flow as athletes, uh, you know, we, we, we generate that, we generate that environment and we get to enjoy it fairly readily. If we do it right, you know, musicians, um, will flip into flow. One of my favorite things to do in life is to watch live bands, particularly live funk or jazz bands and watch them work together as a team. Um, that's, that's a flow experience. And, and Oh, by the way, when we're in flow, we see a synchronization of HRV. We know this happens in choral singers. We know this happens in teams. So there are proactive processes that you can take to, to, to generate the flow experience, whether it be athletically or as a group working together as a team and at, at work, it, it, it all goes hand in hand. Um, I, easily, I, I have a, I'm very comfortable saying that flow, the book flow, the psychology of the optimum experience is easily the most important book I've ever read. And as a, as a coach and as a teacher, I think it's on me to constantly look at, am I doing my best to create a flow experience for the people I'm leading, whether it's a team or whether it's in a classroom? Um, and there are techniques that, that help generate this. Um, and, and again, one of the things that we're seeing is that there's probably an alignment of HRV. There's an alignment in this process that we... We don't have, we haven't completely measured and control yet, but we're sure looking, you know, we're looking over the horizon on this and starting to get a feeling for it. Yeah. And that's, that's, there's so much in there from a life perspective. I mean, I think one of the key things that you said, there's seven pieces that folks can get the book and, and read more into, but uh, one of them is that things have to be challenging, I think, or at least that's a contributor in the sense that, um, you know, 
flow is not the same as just zoning out blankly. It's usually associated with some type of task or um, you know doing something that's slightly challenging so that your brain is engaged and and you're engaged in what you're doing. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, and from a teaching standpoint, you know, we have a tendency, a lot of times we have a tendency to not to stay in our comfort zone. Um, and from a coaching standpoint, learn what we know from an education, learning happens on the edge, you know, doing and, you know, if you go look at uh, uh, K. Andres Erickson's book, uh, Peak, or and all the work that he's done on on how people learn. Learning happens on the edge that, it, you know, when my daughter played ice hockey, when she first started playing ice hockey, you know, she took pride in the fact that she didn't fall in practice. She, she skated and didn't fall. But as you start to get good, the fact that you don't fall is probably an indication that you're not pushing yourself enough. You're not going to get in the flow that you learn out there on the edge of the skates, on the edge of what you do. Oh, by the way, that's where flow happens, too. So being able, being comfortable moving yourself out of a comfort zone into that uncomfortable space of unknowing, but, but know that the reward that comes with this is just a crazy experience. Again, we get the dump of all the great hormones. Um, and it's a really cool place to be that if, if you're not willing to challenge yourself, you don't get to live there. Yeah. And that's, that's where so many things that we can learn in life can come from sports because like you were saying and with Stephen Kotler's book and some of the extreme athletes and things that he was uh, following and, and you know, using the, them as a way to learn more about the flow state is that you don't have to be in a life-threatening situation to achieve this. There's things you can do outside of those events to get there. And uh, you know, I can't help but think of a couple things that come to mind. One is that this is almost like talking about when Neo finally recognizes that he's in the Matrix <laughs> and uh, and he can kind of dive into the Matrix and become one with his environment and with his whatever he's trying to do. And uh, the other is that I have a, a good friend, Keith Norris, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before. In fact, he's been on the podcast, but um, he describes you know, meditation is a hot topic, right? And he describes when he does power cleans as a really great form of meditation for him. And he's obviously very experienced at power cleans. So like, as long as he's not doing max effort, he's not really too worried about injury and stuff like that. But I think that he can kind of get into a, a flow state when he's weightlifting and it's a very meditative experience for him and that it's something that is almost addictive and he misses it when he's when he has to go without it for a long time and um you know i think that actually is almost continuing down the continuum a little in into the emotional intelligence realm um and even the the tactical and life skills pieces but uh you know there's things you can do to kind of restore the brain's function or balance the brain, meditate, do that type of stuff to get into a flow state. And it doesn't have to be just sitting quietly on a uh, doing chess or it doesn't have to be power cleans. It's different for everyone, um, but it can come from many different sources. Absolutely. Remember, meditation is not about being quiet. Meditation is about being present. Um, it's your ability to recognize that your thoughts have moved somewhere else 
and that it's it's about coming back to presence and and um whether you know depending on it's it's nice to have a target to move back to and 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 with intro, introductory meditation we use our breath to 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 bring ourselves back focus on the breath to bring ourselves back or the body check you know that's the basic introductory stuff but whether it's whether it's being present in a game of chess or present playing a violin or present reading a book flows available for in 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 a lot of different ways but again, that key element is challenge yourself and also uh, eliminating, you know, that 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 sixth area of flow is is a loss of self-concept that you don't worry about what you look like. And, you know, when you're exercising, one of the things that bothers me a lot of times is when you walk into an exercise facility and there's mirrors everywhere. When I, you know, for the period of time I had my facility, I had no mirrors on the wall. Um, because I don't want, I don't want you looking at yourself and thinking about and being somewhere else. I want you present in what we're doing on the exercise. Um, and that's where good feedback, whether it's heart rate or heart rate variability or a power measurement or something like that, it really helps you draw in and get up on the edge to have that flow experience. Mm. Yes, that is huge presence. Yeah. Presence is something that's a really big challenge. It's almost tra- being trained out of us from a young age now in modern society. Um, One of my, a great friend of mine and a huge advisor of mine is a guy by the name of Dr. Ron Garbo. He's a pain management doc now out in, uh, lives out in Eastern Virginia. But Ron and I were teammates at Ohio State and Ron uses HRV and mindfulness to help wean people from opiate addiction. Um, but Ron has a saying that I think is just beautiful is that you can't be fearful and grateful in the same moment. Um, so, and then I like that. Yeah. And the other thing he says is he says, stress only exists in, in fear of the future or regret of the past. Um, that as long as if, if you find yourself moving in those places, presence is the ability to and meditation and all these things the ability to bring yourself back to the task at hand being present um and focusing on where you're at and there's just there's a lot of good stuff that comes from that Mm, that's really powerful stuff it sounds like too that uh i'll have to see if i can get a a introduction over there to ron (laughs) oh no problem yeah yeah um, great. So then, yeah, can kind of continuing down here, we've got emotional intelligence. And I think this is something that is a word that I've heard more and more of recently. And I think people use it in different ways. What is emotional intelligence? Well, for me, uh, intelligence begins with recognition. Um, that you, you, you know, you can't know something until you recognize it. And so it's a process. And again, extending down from the meditative process, recognizing the emotional response that comes with a particular thought. Um, now, so I see too many kids who get caught up in a game and, and they get angry and they, they, you know, they basically go off the tracks. That's a loss of emotional intelligence. Um, recognizing that when someone does something, what is going to be your emotional response to that, disconnecting that many times to the, to the response that you don't want, gives you a lot of power. Um, and that power can extend the other direction, that there's a lot of times in a game that if I can take my opponent's emotional response away from them and they lose control, I immediately gain a competitive advantage. Um, but that advantage is not there unless I have 
an understanding and control of my own emotional response. Um, and um, so, you know, I, I listen to coaches a lot of times talk to teams and tell them to get mean or to get angry. And um, I got to tell you, that doesn't that doesn't ring true with me that the you know activation of the amygdala, whether it's in anger or in fear, um, I don't think that's a competitive advantage. Um, I think the ability to stay in your space, to stay in your zone, to be executing your game plan, you can be very aggressive. Um, I can be, I can be very aggressive. There's times when I want my athletes to dominate my opponents. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're fearful or that they're angry. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that we're giving something away when we do that. Um, you know, when, again, you're getting a, you know, I think of the sympathetic parasympathetic response and I don't think of those as ends of a, of a teeter totter. I think of them of co-activation and it, as we go into a, an athletic event, sympathetic activation comes naturally. I mean, we're getting ready to play, we're getting ready to, to compete. Um, you know, the, the, we're going to get the adrenal activity. We're going to spill the cortisone. We're going to spill the adrenaline and we're going to get prepared to compete. That's a good thing. Um, and then, and then, then I, I've, I've talked about that, the complete parasympathetic activity with no sympathetic activity. I call that fishing. You know, when I'm sitting next to the water and there's a line in and I got no other thought, you know, it's a Brad Paisley song. Um, you know, that's, that's pure parasympathetic, but when I can get sympathetic and co-activation of the parasympathetic, that's when we have valor. That's when we have flow. That's when we have this, all of a sudden fear is gone. Anger is gone. My focus becomes incredibly rich. Um, time slows down. I don't worry about myself anymore. That, 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 that emotional intelligence, the ability to develop that um, recognize, and it starts with recognition. And this is the beauty of the, of the, of learning to meditate. And again, it starts with identifying, you know, when do my thoughts wander using breath to bring them back, using a body check to bring them back, but just coming back is the skill. Um, and it's when you're coming back, you're, you're maintaining emotional control. And again, you know, at some point in time, from a competitive standpoint, if I can take my opponent's emotional control, you know, sorry, but it's a competition and I'm going to, you're going to lose. Yeah. And that's part of, you know, that's part of the learning and process for, that's one reason why sports are so beneficial translating into life is that you're not just learning how to jump and throw a ball into a hoop, for example, you're learning how to um, get into flow with a team, work together, you're, you know, or, or uh, you're learning how to dance with your opponent, not only physically, but emotionally and psychologically. And there's so much that translates out to life with all of that. And, um, yeah, I, I had a couple of quotes come to mind. One from a, a really, uh, <laughs> an encyclopedia called game of Thrones. Um, but basically, uh, you know, there's a sword master in there that says fear cuts deeper than swords. And, Ooh. uh, I, th I liked that quote from there and that kind of seems to plug in here. And, uh, and then another one is that, you know, there's a lot, I think that we can learn from the stoic philosophy, the school of philosophy of stoicism. And like you said, I, it's not about having like a default anger activation 
emotion that helps you dominate everything um, because you're giving up control and some of that. And then you also might have an opponent that's very emotional, intelli- emotionally intelligent and recognizes that all you have in your playbook is anger. And then they will use that against you rather than letting you use it for yourself. And I think it's about flexibility and, uh, like you said, awareness of the situation. And it's not that you should turn off emotion. So this is kind of a stoic philosophy type way of looking at it is um, you don't want to suppress all emotion, but you want to be aware of the emotions that are coming out and how those are impacting the outcome that you're looking for, essentially. So, um, you know, there are times when you can harness emotion to great effect and to uh, further your goals. But yeah, and, uh, and if you let the emotions control you, then that's where it becomes dangerous. For sure. And to extend this out to life, I mean, I don't know of a stronger tool to use in a quality relationship. Um, I know for me, being able to recognize emotional response, where it comes from, why it happens is, you know, been married to my wife for 27 years. We've been together for about 30 now. And we learn every day, you know, you know, the programming that we have growing up and where it comes to, but, uh, it, uh, that can be a very important tool in the management of relationships. Mm, Yes. That's huge. And that, and that kind of just helps us. I love what you did with this triangle because, um, folks, I'm, I'm looking at the triangle, which is how I'm so easily following it around, but well, I'll post the triangle and, uh, it helps us kind of round that corner into the tactical and life skills. So now we're on the bottom of the triangle with skills and we're moving into tactical skills, which could be seen as just like, you know, tactical stuff like related to the military or first responder community would be like shooting a target at the tactical abilities to do those types of things. But there's skills that translate across the broad spectrum of life, sport and everything. And so what is it that we're talking about when we round that corner into tactical skills? Well, when you, when you look at the definition, tactical expertise refers to the degree of uh, a sensory motor coordination um, your ability to recognize and adjust to that. That's what tactical is about. Um, and, um, and so again, it goes back to that recognition, um, my ability to have, you know, to have my head up, uh, you know, when we're in flow, flow is defined as, as, as the disconnection of that prefrontal cortex, that part of your brain that uses so much energy when we're able to disconnect that and it's used for executive function and planning. And the last thing you want to do when you're in the moment is be planning. You know, that's worrying about future. That's got, again, it's got that fear of the future thing coming into play. Um, and when we're, when we're in the moment, when we're in the zone, we are, we've, we've got a lot more energy that I can, that I can afford to give to peripheral observation. Um, so I can see that, that, that wide receiver, you know, this is where, you know, great quarterbacks, they see something that everybody else doesn't see um, and can execute on that. That's that tactical piece that comes in there. And, and again, it, you know, it, it rolls around the corner from that, but it's something that you practice. You look at video, you consider it, 
Um, it's where good coaching comes into play. Again, back to Erickson's, uh, you know, I, I, the, the work that uh, Andres Erickson does down at Florida State is, is just, it's the best on this. I have two or three of his books that we look at um, and, um, and tactical preparation using deliberate practice, uh, practice that is goal-oriented and has an observer or a coach um, is a really important tool in the development of tactical expertise. Mm, okay. And so, yeah, that, that really bridges all of these pieces together into kind of, you know, thing, little things we can do along the way to improve or little things we can do to uh, say, if this, then that, is that kind of right? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and doing it in microseconds, um, you know, having these processes wired, so they're not in the motor cortex, they're not in the prefrontal cortex. These are processes that are wired down into the cerebellum and into the basal ganglia. This is where reps come from. This is where that investment of reps comes from. And it wires in tight when they're challenging reps, when you're really pushing the, the skill set. Um, you know, when that, when those decisions are happening at, at, in the lower brain functions, that's when the excellence comes. Oh, that's huge. As soon as you said the word reps, my brain was like, bing. Okay. <laughs> I see. I see exactly what's going on here. So in it, you know, talking about the movement piece at the beginning of this discussion and, um, you know, being able to just organically move and do different things is great. But then one of the things that you found, for example, is that the ability to squat and the ability to squat low seems to translate to uh, better outcomes in life or better, you know, ability uh, on the mat or in the field or in the various sports. And so uh, we can kind of take that squat movement and practice it with reps to where it becomes natural and because where it becomes, uh, well, it starts out natural. So, <laughs> but regain the naturalness of that movement as well as default to a strong pattern, for example, because I think, you know, this is maybe a tangent, but I, I like to, uh, throw these in every now and then is that, um, people get a little caught up in the exact right way to do something. And they say that, the only way to do something is the exact right way that's the best way to do it. Like, for example, squatting, you want your knees to go out. You want the weight to be evenly distributed through your feet. So you don't want to be up on your toes, something like that. Um, you don't want your knees collapsing in. I already mentioned that. You don't want to round your back and all of this stuff. Well, I would agree with that for the most part. I would say that should be your default pattern that you want to be subconsciously defaulting to when possible. But in sport, and this is definitely the case in wrestling, but in many sports and in life in general, is you can't predict what situations you're going to be in at every moment. And you're, you're not going to be um, you know, going against an opponent that's going to let up just because your apparent squat form is not perfect, right? So you need to be able to squat with non-perfect form without worrying about injury or without having to plan how to do it in the moment. So you need to have some, uh, a wide breadth of tactical skill that you develop just through, you know, many means, but, um, but you want those default patterns to be the strong patterns and the a place of strength. Yeah. You want them wired in first. And, and when you think of, when you think of learning, 
again, we, we, you have you have the basic foundational piece, and, and you yes, what you described as a squat is very important when you first start squatting, when you start to wire in the basic patterns. But there's a point in time that as you stay on the edge, as you're always pushing yourself, being in that, you know, that learning piece, you either do that by increasing the weight, the resistance, the amount of, of, of motor units that we're recruiting, or we throw, we throw, uh, 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 variation into the movement, um, that after you've established, and again, this goes back to Erickson's, um, naive practice, purposeful practice and deliberate practice that we know that if you, you know, when you learn to play tennis and you, when you're first starting going out there and hitting the ball against the wall on a forehand in the beginning moves your skill level up, uh, rather rapidly, but then it plateaus quickly. So you then have to move to a purposeful practice, meaning that I'm just not going to hit the ball, but I want to hit the ball to this point. So we put a goal on that. So all of a sudden our squatting or any other exercise, we it becomes purposeful. There's a goal to that. And then, fi- and then the third level is deliberate practice is where we're getting feedback from a coach. Hey, if you want to hit the ball here, maybe do this with your footwork or do this with your with your with the grip on your racket. With squatting, it may be bar speed movement. It may be the the acceleration of the hips. It could be a lot of things, but at some point in time, we might even start squatting with one leg held up behind us, doing single leg squats, or we may be standing on foam chunks, squatting, creating a perturbation or a or a challenge. We're constantly coming into that creating some kind of a of a an adaptive challenge that's causing us to focus on what we're doing to react appropriately you know I was watching there's a pretty good wrestler over at Penn State he's pretty active on Instagram and he's doing uh he's doing uh heavy ball squats on a bosu ball um yeah that's a that's a I I don't start I'm not going to start my 83 year old mom on heavy squats on a bosu ball you know we're going to start at a basic level and with some with some basic practice, you'll get better, but it'll eventually evolve up. Um, but that applies to to any movement. It's a continuum that starts with strength at the bottom and then moves to 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 a more challenging um, a more challenging motor pattern as we improve. And I think that that's something I, I kind of forgot to mention. This it, it came to mind when we were in the emotional intelligence part of this discussion, and it's that. Almost everything in life, since we're biological organisms that, um, you know, adapt and respond to what we experience is that there's a, uh, you know, a maintenance level of exposure to different things. And then there's an adaptive level of exposure. And then there's like a injurious or like a, a detrimental level of exposure to different things. And really what we want to do if we want to keep moving forward and, and getting better and improving things is we want to be in that hormetic uh, zone where we're getting exposed to a little bit more difficult of a task than we previously have been exposed to, but not so much that it's going to injure us. And that could apply to movement, that it could apply to um, emotional intelligence or challenges or uh, you know mental focus, uh, grit, any of these uh, areas, skill development, and it, it all kind of feeds back. Like you said, if we, if we have that little bit of extra challenge, it helps us get into a flow state and helps us concentrate. Um, you know, and that can feed into a better grit and presence for getting through it. And, uh, and emotional intelligence, what came to mind there is that a lot of people may, uh, 
find challenge with developing emotional intelligence because it's not easy to talk to with people and and people tend to react very negatively if you get it wrong, uh, for example. But it's not something that changes overnight. You don't just say, okay, tomorrow I'm not going to get angry in this situation. It's going to be uh, also a stepwise incremental progress where you kind of develop some of those skills over time and you get better and better at it with practice. Well, and the, the ninja celebrates getting it wrong. The ninja sell, you know, this is one of the challenges that we have in parenting and coaching. And when you look at the mindset, whether it's fixed or, or growth, someone with a good solid mindset that embraces flow, embraces the mistake because it, it, it identifies an opportunity to improve. It identifies the opportunity to grow. Someone who's afraid of that space will lock down their development. They're not going to, and, and again, that winds up with a fixed mindset and that's the, that's the person that cheats first. Um, but that willingness, that willingness to get out on the edge um, and, and, and embrace being there, not mm. be fearful of it. That's, that's someone who, I mean, I watch, you know, I mean, we're watching the Olympics right now when this is getting recorded I'm watching these kids in these crazy half pipes, you know, and they ski off the edge of that thing and flip and twist and turn. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what kind, you know, think about the ability to release that they have. Well, I'm going to go throw my body in the air and I'm going to twist five times and I'm going to rotate a couple times and, and I'm going to come down and land on the, on my board and ski away. I'm God, what an amazing place. And what a, you know, I've, the chemicals in that head are pretty impressive. Mm, yeah. It's, it's so big. And uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, what was I going to say about that? It'll come back to me, but yeah, that's that's huge, and uh, there's so much we can learn from that. And so that kind of plays into oh, oh it was about mistakes. Yeah. Um, so you know, I was just kind of going to take that a step further and say, like you were saying earlier, um, it's not really like the goal is not to make mistakes, but if you're not making mistakes, then you're not probably getting out of your comfort zone or pushing to that next level or improving, right? So. You know, you're not purposefully just trying to make mistakes for no reason, but if you're not making any mistakes, then that's probably something that you could strive to uh, increase a little bit just by exposing yourself to more challenges and experiences. Yeah, coming off the ice at hockey practice with snow all over you is a good thing. Right. Coming off the ice in hockey practice with nothing on you is you didn't learn much that day. And then that's a perfect example because the... You can't take that advice and then go say, oh, well, I'm just going to go to hockey and throw myself on the floor, right? So that that's li completely not the same thing as pushing your limits a little bit and falling and then realizing, okay, now I can do it this way that's a little bit different. Um, so well, from a purposeful standpoint, it's, uh, listen, I, at practice today, I'm going to start to work on the outside edge of my inside turn. You know, mm -hmm. learning to really flip that over. That's a hard thing to control. Everyone does the inside edge of the, of the, of the outside foot, but getting to the outside edge of that inside foot, that's hard. And, and you've, and that, so that can be purposeful. That is the purpose of practice today. And then you can have a coach say, listen, maybe if you shift your weight a little bit, it'll help with that. Then your practice becomes deliberate. 
That's awesome. So then that kind of leads us to into the last couple pieces here of these of the skill side of the triangle, life and technical skills. And um, so I guess maybe for me, what you could do is break down quickly what's the difference between tactical life and technical. And I know that all of these are, you know, there's crossover between all of them, but kind of what are the main differences between tactical life and technical skills? Well, so the, the, we'll use the tennis analogy. The technical skill is the ability to hit a forehand. Um, the tactical ability is the ability to hit a forehand deep in the court when your opponent is coming to the hit a passing shot. Mm. Um, right, uh, so that's the difference between technical. Technical and wrestling is the ability to hit a single leg or we have a move that's called a duck under. Tactically is recognizing when my opponent is creating an opportunity, lifting an arm, then I can hit the duck under. Um, so that, that's, you know, the, the technical is what you drill. You know, that's that's that low level skill so that I have a forehand, I have a backhand, I have a, uh, I, I have a single leg, I have a double leg, I have a, a three point shot, I have a layup. Um, I have a layup, I have a slam dunk. So so tactically is recognizing, oh, I'm on a breakaway. I have two choices here. I could either slam this or I could lay it up or I could go under the bucket. I recognize my opponent is back to my right. I think I'll lay this up with my left hand so my opponent can't get to it to block it. Um, that that's, that's the tactical side of it. L- life skills are those other skills that that are that are not necessarily associated with the sport that will keep you off the court or off the mat? Um, nutrition is a life skill, um, and it's not just knowing the difference between a carbohydrate and a fat, which I think we get hung up on too way too much. But a life skill is recognizing, okay, what is the energy? You know, what are the nutrients I need for what I'm doing uh, today? Where do I acquire those? Where do I acquire those nutrients, and how do I prepare them? Um, I'm, I'm an advocate. I think, uh, we don't do this yet, but I'd sure love to get to the point that when a, when a freshman comes in, I want him to have a class on how to feed yourself appropriately in the commons, you know? So when you go through the line, which food should you select? That's a skill. And, and, and I would, I would extend that, that you're not allowed to move into an apartment until you demonstrate the ability to create a shopping list, go to the store, buy that, come back and prepare the food. Because if the athlete doesn't have that skill set, then you wind up with pizza boxes and wing boxes and they're, they're feeding themselves with their skill that they have. And that's dialing a phone and selecting food. Um, so, so those life skills and, and, and those life skills extend. I mean, I th- there's an amazing example that in, with the football player, Aaron Hernandez, you know, you've got this guy physically is amazing, psychologically does incredible things. But he didn't have the life skill of not recognizing that you don't take someone else's life. So instead of playing in a stadium, he, you know, before he took his own life, he was incarcerated in a jail where he could hear the cheers of from Foxborough Stadium. That that that's a life skill that was missing. Can I, you know, can I can I make my car payment? Can I, you know, I balance my checkbook? Do I have the basic skills to exist so that I'm able to participate in the things I like to participate? Do I have the skill of, of understanding to get in the class, reading my syllabus, showing up for tests when I need to do that? Because if you don't, you flunk out and you don't you don't compete. Um, 
So whether it's nutrition or, or, you know, managing life relationships with other humans, um, the, that's that, that's that key element that if, if it's a zero, you don't get to play. Yeah. You know, your billion goes to zero. That's, that's huge. And so I, I was just kind of thinking and taking a, jotted a couple notes down there. And so a technical skill, if we were to translate that back to just kind of not back, or like you said, to the side, to other realms might be to, um, you know, the ability to, uh, create a PowerPoint and, and deliver a message, uh, while looking at a PowerPoint or something, but a tactical skill might be to be able to deliver a really powerful message in a presentation to a new and high pressure audience, like to your boss's boss or something like that. And kind of using some of those technical presentation skills, like speaking slowly and trying to reduce the amount of ums that you've used and things like that to then portray that in a real life situation where you're under pressure and uh, and then the, from the life skills side of things, you know, I, I, I feel like there's a, a lot that people miss on the life skills thing. It gets dismissed pretty easily um, because I feel like unless you're measuring things like resilience or unless you're kind of quantifying a lot of these other areas, that it's hard to really feel the impact of changes in life skills unless you're really paying close attention. And it kind of comes back to this self-awareness concept um, for all of these. But, uh, you know, I don't think people necessarily understand how if you're eating foods that are inflammatory to you, then that makes it harder in my experience. And I don't have statistics necessarily offhand to back this up, but it seems like from my experience that uh, if you're eating inflammatory foods, it makes it harder to get into a flow state. It makes it harder to be resilient or emotionally intelligent or to get the most out of your energy conditioning session and uh, and recover from strength or you know uh, reaction time for movement, uh, all of these things. And so it's hard to like narrow it back down to that inflammatory food unless you just get rid of that food and then you can feel the difference. Or if you're measuring some of these other things and you're saying, okay, well, I'm doing all these things and uh, I just don't seem to be making the progress that I think I could be making. And it's measurably the case. Uh, what can I change? Okay. Maybe it's one of those life skills. Maybe instead of eating pizza all the time, I'll uh, substitute it in for, you know, some, high quality nutrient dense food or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and when we start to look at food, it's you know, we're dealing with we're dealing with, again, looking at industry how, you know, how it modifies our environment and 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 the fact that when we put that in the context of human optimization, um yeah, there there are food there are food like products that are cheaper to consume and that will keep you alive. Uh, that that are cheaper than real just eat real food kind of things. Um, but and and I'll tell you this is a discussion I have with some of my wrestlers and the fact that that if the nutrients aren't there, 
not only can we get to the optimization point, but we, but you're, you're exactly right, Jason. We don't get the adaptation. We don't get the growth. We don't get those key elements that we're, we're trying to get out of the training process. And so, you know, learning again, that life skill of food, recognizing, understanding what the term inflammatory means, how it extends to the, the things that we're sticking in our face and how we make a better decision or acquire better qualities of, of nutrients to do that is, is a huge skill set, And it affects a lot of different places on that, on that, on the triangle. Yeah. And it's often, it's not the sexy side of the, the equation either, so to speak. I mean, everyone's got to eat, everyone's got to sleep, everyone's got to do basic hygiene and not get sick and things like that. And um, it's, so it's not necessarily glamorous. Um, but like you said, if you have a zero, in that it's really going to be holding you back on all of these other areas. Yeah. And, and it's that, listen, life, I don't think life is, it, it was meant to be endured. Um, you know, we all want to be in a place where we, I, I, when I had my fitness facility, we talked about, we talked about fitness is, I define fitness as the physical capacity to enjoy the life you're given that, that I, no one takes a picture of their scale and hangs it on the wall. Um, but what they do hang on the wall are pictures from vacation, the pictures from their kids' weddings, pictures from events, and and we I always encourage my my uh, my my clients to have what we call trainable life events. Um, that you know, because when you wake up in the morning, it's a little bit of a grind, to, you know, to go put yourself through that. I mean, you know, it's you know, not everybody can totally engage and relish the process like others can. But if you wake up every morning and you know that, hey, uh, in uh, in five weeks, I'm going to be in Florida and I want to be able to enjoy my investment I'm making as much as I can. So I want to walk the beach as much as I can, you know, fill in the blank. I, you know, I'm going to do a 5K. When I finish this 5K, I, I will take a picture at the finish line there and hang on the wall and it'll go on my Facebook page and my Instagram feed and I'll define myself by that. So I think we're always looking for opportunities to, to define and refine ourselves. And, and we, those come in the pictures that we hang on the wall so that, you know, life isn't just a drag, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a series of events that we're excited about and that we, that we draw energy from. That's huge. And then, and it's, I think you can't, you can't find that you can't get there without, uh, you know, challenging yourself. And like you said, learning happens on the edge, um, getting out of your comfort zone, getting in that hermetic zone of adaptation, paying attention to your uh, physiology, your psychology, and your skill development. So I think that really <laughs> sums it all up right there. And that's it, it really helps drive home the fact that it's not just sports and it's not just uh, life or business. Like this thing, these things can apply to everything, whether it's raising children or, uh, you know, just, just going through whatever goals that you have in life. And so, yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, which I can't help but saying over and over again, as I listen to you talk about these different things, but, um, yeah, I think, I think maybe that's a good place to wrap up for today. And I want to, um, thank you again for coming and talking about these things. But before we do, uh, what do you have anything, any closing remarks or thoughts that you had that you wanted to 
to share? Well, I'm 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 grateful for the opportunity that um, you know you and I met a while back, and and the ability to communicate like this has certainly given me some really good feedback in my life. So I really appreciate that. I'm grateful for the the ability to do so, and uh, the more we do it, the the better my life gets. So thank you. No, I appreciate that, Don, and uh, I think all the listeners will agree when uh, we all say that thank you for taking the time to develop your 10 pillars and life skills and all of these other things that you bring to the table when we get to learn from you here on this on the podcast. And so I also want to rope people in a little and let you know that, uh, or rather that I've uh, roped Don in, so to speak, to teach a course for us. And he's going to be talking about some of these in greater depth uh, and also a lot of other great things to learn on it on the hrvcourse.com platform so uh great stuff ahead from don as well and thanks again don for joining us my pleasure uh anytime awesome all right folks we're going to wrap up there uh the show notes are going to be posted at elitehrv.com slash podcast and uh you know uh, links to Don Moxley and all the things that he's got going on, as well as pictures of the triangle that we've been talking about throughout this episode and a link to the previous episode, which if you haven't listened to, I highly recommend. And uh, thanks again, Don, and we'll we'll call it a day. Yep. Thanks. Hey folks, Jason here. A quick closing reminder to check out the online courses over at hrvcourse.com. The experts that you've heard in this and many of the episodes on this podcast have also contributed exclusive content over at hrvcourse.com and it can't be found anywhere else. Many new courses are also in the pipeline over there and remember listeners of this podcast also get 10% off of all courses. Just follow the link in the description of this episode or use coupon code ELITEPODCAST when you check out over at hrvcourse.com. See you next time. Sponsored by hrvcourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, Elite Podcast. Visit hrvcourse.com to get access today.